beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, with Lord's Day 23, we come to the heart of the gospel. For question 59 asks one of the most important questions that could ever be asked. It asks, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? That is to say, why actually do you believe? What do you get out of being a believer? Why do you go to church every Sunday? What do you get out of it? Have you ever wondered about these things? What's the sense of it all? What's the benefit? Time and again, the catechism comes with questions such as this, penetrating questions. It asks us to examine the various aspects of our faith, and it makes us question the purpose of our faith. Why? Well, the catechism does not want your faith or my faith to be a dead faith. The catechism is not interested in some dead orthodoxy. It is not interested in abstract thinking, theological nitpicking. No, the catechism deals with the content of your faith and what it all means for you and for me. How does it help you? So the question that this Lord's Day asks is a very important one. For we deal with the heart of the matter. It refers to all this. How does all this help you? What does that refer to? Well, it refers to, in the first place, what has preceded. And you know what came before this Lord's Day? For we have just finished dealing with the Apostles' Creed. Every statement of the Apostles' Creed was carefully examined and dealt with. The Apostles' Creed is a summary of God's Word. And so essentially all this refers to the content of the Bible, to the Gospel. In Lord's Day 7 we are told as much. However, this question also has in mind what comes after it. For following this and following the other Lord's Days, we will deal with the sacraments and with baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the early Christian church, you would confess your faith with the statements of the Apostles' Creed prior to being baptized and prior to partaking of the Lord's Supper. And now the catechism is in reality saying, now then, before you have your children baptized, and before you partake of the Lord's Supper, do you realize what it is all about? Do you have a good understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, the Heidelberg Catechism is a beautiful book. It's very well arranged. And that's evident not only from the pivotal place in which this question is asked, especially evident from the answer it gives. What benefit do you derive from your faith? Well, let's hear that wonderful answer as it is given in Lord's Day 23. I will preach to you about the benefit of our justifying faith. 
And then we will look at three things. We will first look at why the question is asked. The second place, what the only answer is. And then finally, how we must respond. So then first, why the question is asked. Answer 59 gives us the answer that the benefit of our faith is that in Christ I am righteous before God and an heir to life everlasting. That's theological language. It speaks about righteousness before God. It's not everyday language, but what does it mean? Well, righteousness is a synonym for justice. It refers to being in a right relationship with the Lord God and with his law. Someone who is declared righteous is declared to be no longer guilty of any sin, of transgressing any law. He or she has just been declared justified, innocent. So what? Says the atheist. I do not believe in God anyway, so... What is the matter of what he thinks of me? What is God going to do to me? It's only a figment of people's imagination. There are also others who are not impressed. For there are a lot of people who do believe in God, or so they say. Very few people are atheists by conviction. And many believe that there must have been some intelligent designer or some God who created it all. However, even though they may know that he exists, they do not really care to get to know him. They're indifferent toward God. And that is because they make God to be someone who he is not. They make him out to be someone who is not really interested in his creation. And they see him as some benevolent grandfather who is never angry and who is very generous. As long as you're a good person, God will accept you for who you are, and you will go to heaven. It doesn't really matter how you serve him. You don't even have to go to church. We live in a consumer-oriented society. People are interested in whatever the marketplace has to offer. On a radio comedy show some time ago, I heard a comparison made between the shopping channels and the religion channels on TV. They said that essentially there's not really any difference between the two. A lot of people make shopping to be a religion and religion to be like shopping. You shop for what you like. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? For what do modern TV evangelists do in order to sell the gospel? Well, many of them, not all, make the gospel attractive by emphasizing the benefits of the Christian religion. When you become a Christian, so they say, you will have numerous paybacks. You will have eternal peace. You will have feelings of self-worth. You will have peace of mind. And if you pray and give alms, you'll also receive other benefits. By ardent prayer, you will win that football game or hockey game. Or golf tournament. It's no wonder that so many sports teams turn to Christ. Look at all the benefits. It's also a danger for us. Some people go to church faithfully, make their various contributions, and do their best to keep God's laws. But then when adversity strikes and they are about to lose some of their earthly possessions, then they wonder. 
what the benefit of their faith really is. When there are a few things they don't like in their own church, they go shopping for another church, and then they try to find a church that best serves them, a church that makes them feel good. After all, isn't that what Christianity is all about? It must serve me first. It must make me feel good. Serving God and being obedient to him is only secondary. But is that what your faith, my faith, should be all about? To escape suffering for yourself and your children? And is that what drives you in life? Is that the benefit you want from your religion, from your faith? What if you don't receive such a benefit and you are made to suffer anyway? That's not what the true believers in the Bible did, did they? Think about Joseph, for example. Do you think, for example, that that was the kind of benefit he was looking for? He believed. And yet what happened to him? He was sold into slavery. He was thrown into prison. But he didn't give up on God, did he? And what about Jeremiah? Another example. Look at the things he had to suffer because of his faith. He was thrown into a dung hole and left to die there. And think about Paul and all the other apostles. What earthly benefits did they look for? They didn't. If they had, they would have thrown away their religion at the very start of any kind of adversity. According to the wisdom of the world, you get what you pay for. You receive benefit in accordance with the effort you put into it yourself. And that kind of thinking also infiltrates the church. The more you pray and the more you give to the church and the better moral life you live, the more you will receive from God. If you are a good person and live a fairly moral life, then on that basis, God will reward you. For God is the God of love, isn't he? And he rewards those who are good. Brothers and sisters, that's Arminianism. That's also what the Pharisees taught. Righteousness is something you acquire for yourself, or at least you help a lot in order to acquire it. But now, look at what the Catechism says. It speaks about our righteousness, and here it comes, before God. And such righteousness is obtained in a much different way than modern man thinks. For the world justifies itself in numerous ways. The world thinks that God can be bought or that God can be appeased with good works or they think that God can be ignored. The Lord Jesus, however, said to the Pharisees in Luke 16, verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It's a good thing that the catechism speaks here about our righteousness before God. We all tend to be self-righteous. Someone who is self-righteous thinks that he is good because of the works that he does. He thinks that he is better than others because of the way that he conducts himself. 
The truly self-righteous person has no idea of his own sinful state and does not live out of grace. Pharisees were like that. But don't think that the Pharisees have a corner on self-righteousness. Such self-righteousness is also found amongst us, in your heart and in my heart. A self-righteous person is someone who points fingers, not at himself, but at other people. Is there anybody here that has never done that? I'm sure that's not the case. And such a person highly values what other people think of him or her. And he does everything to show himself in a good light. Congregation, it's not so hard to impress yourself with what a good person you are. It's not so hard either to impress other people. But do you know what's hard? It's hard to impress God. As a matter of fact, it is impossible to impress him. You cannot impress him with anything you say or with anything you do. Of course, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. We'll get to that in the second point. Yes, he does. He loves you and me because it is his nature to love. And he loves us unconditionally because you are his child. And that is why he also sacrificed his dearly beloved son. But he does not love you because of your own righteousness or anything that you have to contribute. For what do we mean when we speak about our righteousness before God? Then we speak about a righteousness which is acceptable to our perfect and almighty God. We speak about a righteousness before an almighty God who is the creator of everything. And who established a covenant with his own people. We speak about a God who is true to his word always. Brothers and sisters, we are speaking about an awesome God. A powerful God. And only such a God has perfect righteousness. Do you think that you or I, with anything we do or say, could impress such a God? He's the one who made us. He's the one who has given you and me the ability to speak and to act and to move. And only he can impute the perfect righteousness before God that he requires. Isaiah had a good concept of such an almighty God. In a vision, the Lord showed himself to him in his majesty. And then Isaiah saw God seated on the throne, high and exalted. He saw all the angels around him, and he heard them calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as they spoke, the whole earth shook. At that point, Isaiah stands in awe of such an almighty God and he cries out, Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I will dwell, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah could not help but to feel totally worthless in the face of such glory and majesty and might. He had seen the Almighty God and he expected to die. 
For that is what God himself had said would happen. You cannot see God and live. And that is because of man's sinfulness. He cannot stand before such a holy God. You know, the same thing is true of the high priest Joshua. He stood before the throne of God and he was dressed in filthy clothes. And beside him stood Satan ready to accuse him. Satan was eager to point to his filthy clothes and to point that out to the Lord God. And he had every right to do so. For Joshua's clothes were filthy because of his continual, continual transgression of God's laws. They were filthy because of the pollution that clung to him because of his sins. The high priest's dress known as the ephod and made of costly material which was worked with gold, purple, and scarlet was supposed to be meticulously clean when he presented himself in the temple. Not a speck of dirt was allowed to be found on his clothes. But now there he stood before God himself. And in spite of his beautiful, impeccable clothes, they are found to be totally filthy. And they were found to be in that condition because of his own fault. And Joshua knew he had no excuse. Satan had a good case before God. And because of his guilty conscience, Joshua also knew it. For as the catechism says, my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. Our conscience accuses us. Please note that the catechism is speaking here about the conscience of a believer. For our conscience has been conditioned by the word of God. Those who do not know God and those who have ignored him, their consciences are defective. Listen to what Paul says about them in Timothy 4 verse 2 where he speaks there about liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Our consciences, however, accuse us. For we know, at least we ought to, what God wants from us. We have some inkling of that. We know that God wants absolute obedience to the law. And we know how far we fall short of what God requires from us. We know how we sin against him and our neighbor every day, day in, day out. And now there stands Joshua with his filthy clothes before God. And you know whom he represents, don't you? He rep represents you and me. How do we get out of that terrible predicament? Well, let's go back to the catechism and to the second paragraph, which begins with little words, yet God. Those two words, brothers and sisters, introduce the most liberating and profound statement you will ever hear. It is momentous. It is wonderful. Those words are so precious. Here we find the only answer to our predicament. And that's also what our second part deals with. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, that's what happens to the high priest Joshua. As he stands there before the throne of God as a guilty man, about to be thrown into everlasting condemnation, he commands the angel to take off his filthy clothes and declare to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What a wonderful moment. His filthy clothes are instantly replaced with wedding garments. He is invited to celebrate with God. Why would the Lord God do that? How is it possible? Well, listen to what it says further in the Catechism. The perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is given to him. The perfect satisfaction refers to the doing of God's law. Christ has fulfilled every requirement of the law perfectly for our sakes. Nothing needed to be added to what Christ has done. Christ is the one who fulfilled the law actively by keeping the law and passively by allowing the punishment to take place on him. He fulfilled the law and suffered on our behalf. His obedience and his suffering and death were enough of a payment. God requires no less and he requires no more. For that reason, God is not impressed with anything we do or say. For everything we do and say is tainted with sin. The only thing that is acceptable in the sight of God is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness and holiness are also imputed to those who believe. He has put them in a right relationship with the law and so made us holy, pure, clean as snow. There we stand before the throne of God, cleansed. What a wonderful statement that is given here, congregation. What a great song of praise about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you also sing about that in your own life? We're all sinners. And we think about some of the things we have done in the past, and maybe some of you, they're still really bothered by these things. But think about what Christ has done. Put it before him. He cleanses us. And there is still more. It says that his work is given to us out of mere grace. The word mere refers to the fact that it has a legal reality. It is done without assistance or support. His grace is absolute, total, undiminished. And it must be considered apart from anything else. That's what the word mere stands for. It means that we, that you and I, we have nothing to offer. You want to go shopping, brothers and sisters? Do you want to receive a benefit from your faith? What are you going to use as payment? Well, the only thing you have is what God gives you. You have nothing to offer whatsoever. Your prayers, your church going, your alms, do absolutely nothing for your salvation. God's salvation is free. 
And there is no end to the riches that you receive. For listen to what else answer 60 tells us. We are told that he grants those benefits to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin. And as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ rendered for me. Note the triumph of those words. It's a song of jubilation. These are words to sing about. Whatever you have here on this earth has no significance whatsoever without God. You may stand in the midst of adversity. The world may fall apart around you. Your crops may fail. Your house may burn down. Your children may be afflicted with all kinds of horrible diseases. Wars may break out. Natural disasters may come. Your enemies may strip you naked and humiliate you. But none of those things can take away the joy of such a statement. Paul, in the midst of his miserable circumstances, languishing in jail without a coat to keep him warm, rejoices. He writes to the Philippians that he rejoices in all and every circumstance. How is that possible? It is possible because he realizes what a great gift he has been given by the Lord his God. But Paul and all the others receive these things only if they believe. If they believe that they are true. Without faith, you don't receive those gifts. Without faith, you are left out in the cold. Without faith, you are left only to look forward to earthly things, to things which do not last. And that indeed is also what this Lord's Day is about. Faith is put into the center. We must respond to those gifts by believing and therefore also by being thankful. That's the last point. We are told in answer 60 that I must accept this gift with a believing heart. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper and when, we, and when parents present their child for baptism, then they do this because they respond because of their faith. Because they believe in God's promises. And that's why we also eat the bread and drink of the wine to acknowledge and remember that the Lord Jesus died for our sins and made us heirs of life everlasting. And when a baby is presented for baptism and the parents do that with the knowledge that God gives eternal promises. God does not promise material well-being. He doesn't promise earthly goods. Oh yes, we do receive them. And that's wonderful. It's wonderful that we can enjoy them. But those things we receive only as a reminder of what is to come. Namely, eternal blessedness. They all serve to remind us of our salvation. The Catechism says that God's gifts are imputed to me. Similar wording is used in the form for the baptism of infants. Imparting to us what we have in Christ, namely the cleansing from our sins and the daily renewal of our lives till we shall finally be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect in life eternal. These words are meant for all of us, and especially for our children. We confess this over against the Roman Catholics and over against the Arminians. 
Their objection is she must do good works. How can you automatically include children in the covenant? At least faith has to be evident before these promises can be appropriated. However, do you know what they do with that concept of faith? They make faith into something to earn your salvation. So they make faith a work and not a gift. Think about what they're saying when they do that. Let me illustrate that with an example. You drive your car into the river and are about to go under and to drown. And then someone comes along to pull you out. You stretch out your hand to him so that he can can get hold of you. And then he pulls you out. Now who saved you? Did you do that yourself? Did you really have any role in your rescue just because you stretched out your hand and trusted your rescuer and believed that he would save you? Of course not. And that's the way it is with us. God saved you and me from sin. He has saved you and me from death. And it is all his doing. Indeed, you must stretch out your hand to him. You must hang on to your Lord and Savior for dear life. But even that you can only do in God's strength. The Bible clearly says that we cannot even so much as lift a finger in our own strength. It's all God's doing. And you must also accept what he has done and show your thankfulness. How do you show it? Well, you show it by, do you show it by doing good works? Yes. But your good works, as we will see in the next Lord's Day, are only the fruit of what God has done. And they are only an expression of our thankfulness. Once again, to God alone be the glory. He has done and will continue to do it all. Just believe. Have faith. Trust in him. Amen.